Winter is a memory he holds close. When he was young, winter in Delhi was a tender thing. A benign spirit wafted down from the snowbound Himalayas, bringing cold air and the mist of morning. Winter was shawls and coats, the aroma of charcoal braziers in the shanty town he passed on the way to work, his breath white as a cloud. Later came the smog age, the inversion layers, and the choking fog that crept into rooms and nostrils and lungs. Today, the poison has not left the air, but winter is gone. Dinesh lies in his bed, thinking about this, the covers thrown off. He looks at the cracks in the ceiling, the superhero posters on the wall. The minas are nesting on the ventilator still, cackling away at some private joke. On the road, down below, Ranj, the taxi driver, is already having an argument with one of the drugstore delivery boys over some porn videos not returned. And Dinesh's landlady in the flat below is berating the cleaning woman, who is giving it back with interest. The pack of pariah dogs is barking in the park across the road, and they will be at the house any moment, waiting for him to come down and share breakfast with them. Outside his window, the jacarda tree is blooming, and it's only January. Sweat has congealed in his armpits and groin. He thinks of something Manu might have said, had he been lying in bed with him. But Manu has fled, like winter itself. One might think of the loss of winter in a place where winter has been so gentle as not something to be, where winter has not been so gentle, is not something to be mourned. But the desert lies waiting west of Delhi, waiting to embrace the city in languorous sandy arms. The sandstorms are only messengers, rate dutas carrying love notes to the greater city, saying, I'm coming, I'm coming. The city will be engulfed, according to climatologists' models, between 2025 and 2040. Dinesh wants to be there to see the two great monsters dance the dance of consummation, city and desert, desert and city. But before that, there are other monsters to consider. He washes and dresses. The water smells metallic and slightly foul comforting in its familiarity. He goes up to the roof with a cup of strong tea and a mask. From here, this view is spectacular. Immediately around him, the walls and steps are grimy with soot and other pollutants. But the city itself is an impressionist painting, all clean lines smudged by the brown air, the sun orange and blurry as a child's watercolor painting. He coughs inside his mask, and lifts it enough to sip the tea. The pollution has fingers. He can see them reaching out between the buildings around the choke trees. When Manu left, he took winter with him, leaving behind a melancholy that Dinesh imagines as a figure seated on a windowsill, waiting. And while he waits, he wonders after the monster that has taken winter with him and what it is doing today, what has brought it about. And is in his investigations by day as a journalist and by his sort of sleepless nights as a 
hacker and a crawler of um, the dark web, a friend of AI bot named Cat Walker, Cat Lover. Um, he starts to learn of a history that is um, little known but available somehow. Um, and it's the history of a Swedish roboticist named Carl Johansson. Dinesh looks over the notes he's made over the past few months, and he finds, Johansson wrote the Wendigo code that is the basis of the mega machine's power. The Wendigo code is responsible for the fact that intelligent mega machines devour to increase its hunger, not to satisfy it. The machine lives for the wetting of the appetite, for the way the illusion of satiation begins to dissolve after the first tastings. That tension between the satisfaction of the moment and the tantalizing de desire of increasing hunger is what it lives for. For example, a tunnel borer, a great machine that burrows into the earth for mineral ore, the more it finds, the greater its desire to find even more. It has a serpentine body segmented like a worm, but more massive than any worm that's lived on this earth. Its face is the shape of a star. Its mouth hole protrudes like a hollow tongue, enormous and prehensile when it is feeding, delicate as a mosquito's proboscis when it is searching for food. The monster's eyes, atop the stalks on its head, are many-faceted, swiffling continuously in all directions as it surveys the scene. In the Arctic and along the other coasts are the sours, with their long necks, the tapering snouts, the long, thin tongues that can taste hydrocarbons on the seafloor. They can walk in the shallow waters of the continental shelves, and they can swim. When they find a good source of oil or natural gas, they raise their long necks, pointing their snouts at the sky, and call soundlessly to the Rig Mother. The Rig Mother is a mad machinist nightmare conception of a swan. Great as a, sh great as a ship, she wakes from her nesting state. Her engines roar to life, and on she comes, unfurling her black wings with the rattle of steel, her tall head atop the tower, seeking her children the sours, answering their cry. She lives to feed on the rich hydrocarbons, storing them in her great holds until the seabed is ravaged and empty, cloudy with poisons and disturbed with dust. Pale bellies of dead fish float up. She will drink the sea's bounty in days or weeks and then answer the call of her home port, where she will empty her full tanks and return to a state of comatose dreaming while her children roam the seas. I'm reading from a story called Widom by Vandana Singh. Um, it goes on I, through many um, complex turns to tell the story of a rebel sour, a rebel robot that enters into a collaboration with, um, of some promise for, for resisting a regime that uh, we might recognize as a, a kind of sci-fi sci dream of uh, the logic of capitalism as, as something that devours to increase its hunger. Um, but what I would like to do today is to tell you a little bit about how this story came to be written, uh, came to be part of this book. Um, 
thank you so much for the the lovely introduction, which which saves me some some overview. Um, I'll switch now, and thank you, um, and I'll return to this purple cloud um, at some point in in this discussion. So um, this science fiction story is one of four stories that I commissioned as part of a project that eventually became a book called A Year Without a Winter, um, which is like the others um, available for inspection uh, out on, on the desk. And um, I'm delighted that to have the opportunity to give you a taste of it. So thank you very much for having me. Um, a Year Without a Winter took a meandering path from an original historical inspiration, which is the story of how Frankenstein, the novel, um, came to be written between the years 1816 and 1818. This project likewise um, consumed me in a search after monsters between the years 2015 and 2018 until its publication um, about one year ago. Um, just to offer a suggestion of what's in the book, um, it contains a selection of science fiction stories, um, texts by literary historians, um, architectural theorists, uh, visual art contributions, um, a text by the next speaker, uh, curator Nadim Saman, um, as well as accounts of, of collaborations with an oceanographer, um, a Red Cross, Red Crescent worker, um, all of whom became entrained into a story that stretches between this historical moment um, just 200 years ago and our contemporary climate crisis. But what gave rise to this book um, was a story that I encountered of um, what it was that Mary Shelley was up to uh, about 200 years ago when she began writing this novel of, with which I'll presume a, a certain familiarity, although Frankenstein has the uh, unique virtue or perhaps um, <laughs> A vice of excessive familiarity. Um, it's a book that we often know before before we've read it. Um, so it's quite interesting to discover something, a new way of reading this novel as um, what we might think of as a, an, another novel of climate crisis, perhaps even the first or um, certainly one that gives birth to a genre of science fiction that has always had latent within it a response to climate crisis. So Shelley herself tells the story. Um, in the summer of 1816, she says, we visited Switzerland that we, as um, she and her then lover, her married lover at the time, um, Percy by Shelley, she was Mary Godwin at, um, at the time, we became the neighbors of Lord Byron. At first we spent our pleasant hours on the, on the lake, but it proved a wet, ungenial summer and incessant rain often confined us for days to the house. Some volumes of ghost stories translated into the German from translated from the German into French fell into our hands. We shall each write a ghost story, said Lord Byron, and his proposition was acceded to. Um, so this lovely vignette, which comes to be remembered as the dare, um, was offered by Byron, who was the eminent poet, which they in a way, um, all of the guests at the, the at this house, his his home on the banks of Lake Geneva, the Villa Diodati, um, it, people came as admirers to Byron, and they were all, in a way, um, aspired to obtain his affections and attentions um, through many different means. So it was a summer holiday of 
inspiration, but also a summer holiday interrupted by uh, many a dark and stormy night. But it proved to be extremely generative, um, giving rise to Mary Shelley's first attempt to write the story that would become Frankenstein, inspired as, by her own accounts of a dream of a monster staring into her window, illuminated by the flash of lightning behind her. Um, other stories were also written on poetry. And because I have the, the freedom of rereading this book myself, I think I'll, I'd like to read you a brief excerpt from Byron's own response to the dare, which was to write not a, not a ghost story, as it turned out, um, but a poem called Darkness. I had a dream, which was not at all a dream. The sun was extinguished, and the stars did wander in the eternal space, rayless, pathless, and the icy earth, swung blind and blackening in the moonless air. Morn came and went, and came and brought no day. And men forgot their passions in the dread of their desolation and all hearts were chilled into a selfish prayer for light. And they did live by watchfires, and the thrones and the palaces of crown kings and huts and habitations of all things which dwell were burnt for beacons. Cities were consumed, and men, were ga men gathered around their blazing homes to look once more into each other's face. Happy were those who dwelt within the eye of the volcano and their mountain torch. A, fear, a fearful hope was all the world contained. Forests were set on fire, but hour by hour they fell and faded, and the crackling trunks extinguished with a crash, and all was black. Seasonless, herbless, treeless, manless, lifeless, a lump of death, a chaos of hard clay. The rivers, lakes, oceans all stood still, and nothing stirred within their silent depths. Ships sailorless lay rotting on the sea, and their masts fell down piecemeal. As they dropped, they slept on the abyss without a surge. The waves were dead, the tides were in their grave. The moon, their mistress, had expired before. The winds were withered in a stagnant air, and the clouds perished. Darkness had no need of aid from them. She was the universe. A darker vision we couldn't imagine in the Anthropocene, I think, still. Um, all of this bespeaks a kind of nascent awareness that these authors shared of a crisis that was just beginning, uh, a crisis that we would have no explanation for for several hundred years to come, um, but nonetheless resonates through their literature as uh, the myriad crises of the Anthropocene resonate through the art and literature of uh, contemporary practice, as we've seen throughout this conference. Um, it turns out, in retrospect, by the time Shelley would publish uh, Frankenstein, that period of time, 1816, would come to be called the year without a summer. But it wasn't only a year. It was, in fact, a three-year period of climate cooling in which um, the northern hemisphere was became extremely cold, and we see just the beginnings of that, that awareness then uh, plunging the world into a kind of climate chaos, social breakdown, um, economic 
chaos that had run-on effects for for many many um, decades to come. Uh, there was snow in the northern in in the Americas in uh, in June and all sorts of um, crop failures throughout Europe, throughout Russia, and little known to the circle of correspondence at the time, um, there were likewise disruptions of the monsoon in Southeast Asia and India. Um, many years later, it would come to be uh, affirmed what many suspected, that the cause of this climate catastrophe was the eruption of a volcano in, um, in 1815, the Mount Tambora and the Indonesian island of Sumbawa. Um, in fact, it would take a year after the eruption for the, clear, uh, the um, cloud of sulfur dioxide, which was shot up into the sky by this eruption, to spread around the world. It remains the largest eruption um, in modern human history, although um, investigations continue into other earlier eruptions that may, have been, may or may not have been larger. Um, but it has been known, especially since the Pinatubo eruption in 1991, that volcanoes can have this kind of radical cooling effect. Um, so, but of course, at the time, in light of the scientific insight of the day, the colonial networks of communication, the state of technologies, um, none of this could have known. So, could have been known. So many, many authors. Uh, poetic as well as um, documentary and scientific, were giving accounts from immersed within this unfolding crisis. And it's in this way um, a moment very different from ours in which we're inundated by data, inundated by images, um, inundated by mediation in a way the crisis is, is so omnipresent that I think in a way it, it poses an inverse but nonetheless comparable challenge to comprehension, to representation. So I found it productive um, to go back to this moment and think about how we might look back to another historical moment, an opposite, if you will, climate crisis, um, and think about how it gave rise to um, to varieties of artistic practice. I love this opening from uh, Victor Frankenstein as he prepares to tell a tale of which we, with which we are familiar. Um, he says, prepare to hear of occurrences that are usually deemed marvelous. Were we among the tamer scenes of nature, I might fear to encounter your unbelief, perhaps your ridicule. But many things will appear possible in these wild and mysterious regions, which would provoke the laughter of those unacquainted with the ever varied powers of nature. So as the opening to the novel, uh, Frankenstein or Victor um, makes an appeal for us, the reader, and his in direct interlocutor, the uh, sea captain, Roger Walton, to believe his story with a kind of reality effect, saying, if you have seen this, perhaps you will believe the story I've told you. And I think it's, it's one that we might carry with us um, in thinking about how we, what, what becomes plausible, what becomes imaginable, um, both in terms of fictional and possible futures, and in terms of um, the kind of climate of doubt that has been um, cast by corporate effects on, on climate science itself.
So uh, with this inspiration, I decided to commission a group of authors with the help of, with the support of um, my colleagues at Arizona State University, the Center for Science and Imagination. And we decided to restage or reenact this dare, which in truth began as a, a summer holiday um, born of friends and lovers escaping to the countryside. But um, we thought, where, where would we do this today? Where would be an interesting place to encounter the varied powers of nature, not as we encounter them during the year without a summer, but perhaps a year without a winter, or perhaps it's more a future without a winter or without seasons. So we held the reenactment in um, Arcosanti, which is a kind of experiment, architectural and social experimental town, only partially built in um, the Mesa of uh, Arizona. Um, I was joined there by Vandana Singh, Tobias Bakal, Nettie Okorafor, and, and um, Nancy Kress, along with uh, futurists and scientists, and we just decided to try to, in a way, reenact and reconstruct um, something of the kinds of lectures and um, activities that might have been going on with, with Shelley and her company. Um, but in fact, we encountered very different conditions, and I can, I can tell you about that, because one can never pre-program what will be inspiring. Um, this was not a drinking crowd, as it turned out. This was a crowd more moved by arachnophobia and the discomforts of this very strange and uh, problematic architectural environment. And, um, I should say we sat down to um, read this poem, Darkness, and somehow um, we were we were sitting just out front of this this arch, which of course looks like something out of a sci-fi uh, film or novel and in fact is often um, these uh, these architectural projects do figure in sci-fi and somehow um, out of nowhere in the Arizona desert um, in October which is normally very hot and dry one cloud seemed to arrive just exactly overhead and uh, rained out the reading of darkness which was amazing so we moved under under the thing um, so I can I can say more about the retreat if, if people are interested. But it was um, it was in that context that some of the that these stories were conceptualized and then they were delivered to us um, about a year and a half later and giving a kind of interim period of incubation comparable to Shelley's. Um, but it was not only a, not only literary insight um, as a group of scholars of geoengineering have noticed, um, it was not only literary insight, but also scientific ins insight that was occasioned by this episode of climatic disruption. Scientists have looked to the eruption of Tambora and this episode of a year without a winter, as well as more recent volcanic eruptions as a potential source of inspiration of what we might do about our own rapidly warming planet. Um, for better or for worse, of course, this Tambora episode also registers all of the dangers latent in some of the geoengineering proposals that are being floated. Um, but it's, I think, interesting and important to sort of track these developments together. This became the subject of a project by Carolina Sabeca, an artist, um, which has many facets. Um, there's just one element of this project is represented in this book. Um, it is a, a project called a memory, an ideal, and a proposition. Um, these are artificial reconstructions of three clouds, um, 
overtly artificial. As you see, they're, they're here in a jar. Um, for each one, she has vaporized the um, material substrates that would have been present first uh, at the eruption of Mount Tambora. The second is um, a, a cloud formed in 1946 in a cold box at General Electric Research Laboratories. Um, and this became part of a cloud research project called Project Sirius, which sought to control the weather through cloud seeding and such, um, which in retrospect um, has also become a key moment in the history of, of research into controlling the weather, um, tracking weather modification, and aspiring perhaps towards um, broader modifications, not of weather, um, but really of climate, and the difference between those is important. Um, the third cloud depicted here, and you'll notice that the, I was excited to show it on a big screen because the subtle differences are actually vi visible. Um, a proposition is a cloud that was um, scientists have been trying to find permission to create. Um, it's a, an experiment, a field test of solar radiation management technology, which involves um, spraying 100 grams of calcium carbonate into the stratosphere. Um, there are varieties of these proposals, but this is very much uh, the kind of contemporary. Um, research into environmental modification and perhaps a kind of monstrosity um, in the making as well. So see, these are some of the, the clouds that have preoccupied me. Um, I, I return often to the descriptions of Tambora and um, the eruption from offered, collected by some people who were um, in the midst. Um, this is the, uh, an account by the colonial officer for Sir Stanford Raffles, again turning back to 1815 for a, a brief moment. He says, from the 6th, that is of, of April 1815, the sun beha became observed. It had everywhere the appearance of being enveloped in a fog. The weather was sultry and the atmosphere close and still. The sun seemed shorn of its rays, and the general stillness and pressure of the atmosphere foreboded an earthquake. And as one of the contributors to this book, uh, David Higgins, a, a literary historian, has observed um, this, this writing bears a close resemblance to the kind of literary style of the day, in fact, to a passage in Paradise Lost in which um, describing Satan's um, ruin after his fall. And I'll, I'll skip through that, but it's just to point you to a kind of constant continuity between literary, scientific, and um, kind of uh, other, other forms of description. And what, he, what Higgins offers is an account of the kind of heteroglossic narratives um, of this historical moment, which continue to unfold as our scientific re-narration of that moment. Um, elaborates and kind of explains, but um, doesn't kind of evacuate the significance of these earlier descriptions. Um, and again, they, they resonate through Frankenstein. So it's a constant dial. If you, if you read the novel with an attention to the uh, literary um, and to the kind of climatic and weather and environmental themes. It's a kind of flip side of the focus on a monster. Many people are familiar with the story of um, 
of Frankenstein. I'll, I'll move through this um, wonderful book. I should just plug the book um, about Tambora, but I'll, I'll just return to this. Um, sorry, I was hoping there was another different slide there. <laughs> um, one reads one reads for a kind of latent awareness in Frankenstein as as one does in, in kind of contemporary images. So Roger Walton, the Arctic explorer to whom um, Victor will confess his his crime of having created a monster, a monster that usually gets gathers most of our attention. But I, I was in fact more interested in these letters exchanged from the Arctic and to this exposure to the Arctic, because as the case may be, um, the Tambora eruption had strange effects on the, the weather system and led to a thawing of the Arctic and a rush to towards the North Pole, a rush towards the uh, to discover a new Northwest Passage, which is very much um, being recapitulated today. So at a certain point, this literary um, thought experiment of a kind of turning back to a historical moment and thinking through our own, um, I, I start, came to feel as if the world itself was participating in this kind of historical reenactment, which was quite strange. So Roger Walton says to um, his comrades at some point, uh, to he says, our situation was somewhat dangerous, especially as we were encompassed round by a very thick fog. And this circumstance of how one thinks through a very thick fog was perhaps what drew me and gave me a kind of un unflagging affinity for the film that you watched at the outset of this presentation, uh, which is a piece called Loveland by Charles Stankiewicz, um, a Canadian artist and it was filmed in 2012 in um, in the Arctic and what I I would love to leave open for your interpretation what this cloud was um, but I'll, I'll tell you because you know it's that kind of circumstance um, it's a, a series of um, military grenades exploded um, at a distance and then they they rush along in the wind over an Arctic landscape but I found that in encountering this um, this work over and over again in different contexts and then revisiting it, I found it deeply captivating because it, it didn't, there was not a sort of single interpretation that held me. It seemed at once ominous, enchanting, um, devastating, suffocating. Um, and I think it was moving through those different responses that I thought all of those um, affective reactions are, are relevant and necessary. So, I, um, it's, it's a motivation for me to think through a very different kind of artistic response or, a, a, or kind of mediation or reaction, um, sometimes not even overt to climate crisis and what its role, what the role of very, very abstract work um, such as that could have in thinking through um, the climate change and the Anthropocene. So I'll return Um, returning to the Frankenstein and to the book, I would mention that it is often forgotten that Frankenstein or the modern Prometheus begins aboard a ship in the Arctic Ocean as a narrative recounted by a sea captain bound for the North Pole. In a series of letters addressed to his sister in England, 
Roger Walden conveys the ambitions and tribulations that paint him as an archetypal explorer in whom delusions of grandeur mix with sentimental indulgences of joy and despair. As he faces the leadership, trials of leadership and vicissitudes of fortune in the face of nature's extremes, he yearns for a friend to temper his judgment and in which to confide his emotions. One morning, an uneasy crew awakens to find their ship immobilized in sea ice, surrounded by an impenetrable fog. There, against all odds, Walton's wish for genteel company finds fulfillment with the rescue of a half-frozen man traveling on foot over the shifting surface of the ice. His determination to reach the pole outmatching even that of the ambitious explorer, Victor Frankenstein inexplicably refuses to board the ship until assured of its destination. Readers today know the reason for Frankenstein's absurd pursuit even before he discloses it to the novel's narrator. Victor seeks the death of the monstrous being he has brought to life by artificial means, only to abandon in horror and regret. Having first pleaded for love and sympathy from his virgin father, the nameless creature now seeks vengeance, and their struggle unto the death has driven them to the very ends of the earth. The tale would hardly be plausible had the sailors not witnessed an apparition in the fog that corresponded to Victor's description of a human form, enormous in stature and impervious to the cold, the harshness of the environment being a measure of his own monstrosity. The novel thus begins with a pleading for the veracity of the story to follow, a demand that the reader draw inferences from the hazy edges of experience to still more marvelous and terrifying possibilities beyond. Frankenstein's opening scenes in the Arctic double as a parable of the novel's origin on the banks of Lake Geneva amid the stormy weather of the year without a summer. Both the fictional space of the novel and the historical circumstances of its conception attest to how a sense of climatic estrangement opens the mind to previously unfathomable notions. Written amid a climate crisis more mysterious to Mary Shelley and her contemporaries than anthropogenic climate change is to us today, Frankenstein's text and context hold clues for understanding how attention, perception, and cognition are moderated under atmospheric conditions animated by unseen forces. This moment is exemplary, for unfamiliar things tend as often to be overlooked as to inspire curiosity. Fright may induce repression rather than confrontation. And if strange phenomena do set the imagination to work, it may be in the direction of paranoia as opposed to insight. Psychological dynamics clearly at work in the contemporary culture of denial surrounding climate change. Perhaps more insidious even than the outright rejection of scientific consensus, a version of attention offers a passive means of avoidance, allowing problems that warrant an immediate response to, the, to slip below the radar, even in contexts where climate science is accepted. Such tendencies are often condoned by social norms of attention, which, for example, preserve talking about the weather as a banal space of neutral social discourse. What makes it possible, then, to notice aberrant phenomena and hold them within our sphere of attention, 
without freezing in shock or turning away in disbelief. A Year Without a Winter stages a series of environmental disorientations designed to foster dwelling within spaces of uncertainty and ambiguity that typify forecasted climate futures. In contrast to the imperative of activist environmental art, which I've heard a lot about in this context and, and deeply respect, um, but I'm kind of investigating a, a tension um, that I think is, is productive. Um, in contrast to the imperative of, of activist environmental art, which aims to clarify understanding of climate change and offer a take-home message about what to do about it, this project posits the need for deeper aesthetic explorations of the uncomfortable territory of ambiguity, indeterminacy, and our inexplicably inexplicable complicity in the, today's environmental crises. Amitav Ghosh has recently argued that climate change remains unthinkable within the dominant cultural logic epitomized by the realist novel, the aesthetic conventions of which con consign uncanny affects, rare and implausible events to the subgenres of science fiction, fantasy, and horror. Horror is a genre populated by monsters, often hailing from netherworlds or outer space, whose beings, whose very existence is a violation, I quote, violation of the natural order, where the perimeter of the neutral order is determined by contemporary science. The confluence of Gothic era aesthetics and Tambora era climate being valorized, being overwhelmed by sublime landscapes and fascinated by monstrous visions, giving rise to new literary genres beyond the pale of realism. From colonial ambitions in the Arctic to aesthetic ambitions in the Alps, and later lingering cold and famine, multiple interests converged in this historical moment to reward attention to climate. And yet, as the monster stories of Shelley and her colleague John Polidori attest, it is not necessarily the image of, of climate or the image of nature it's even that sustains the strike of lightning, the torrents of rain, the fogs that blanket the mind in mysterious environs. One cannot predict what delusions and insights may arise within an unfamiliar environment. Climate makes itself felt not only as manifest content, for example, a preoccupation with ice and darkness, but more subtly as a context for strange affects and impossible beings. An imaginative grasp of climate, climate change demands new ways of toggling between figure and ground, allowing the diaphanous and unstable conditions of climate to arrest attention as fellow protagonists in her contemporary drama. If these conditions evade comprehension, this is due as much to aesthetics, the aesthetics of art and nature, as to the idea of climate itself. Um, and I, the the section of this essay that continues is reprinted in the uh, in the Sonic Acts magazine, and I would be delighted um, to share it with you. Um, I'll close by some of just showing pictures of some of the encounters um, that this um, being embroiled very personally in this narrative led me to. Um, ultimately, it led me back to Tambora, um, and this is the, the crater of Tambora, which I climbed with an artist 
named Julian Charrier, and this became um, another direction of thinking through what these clouds might mean, a, a cloud of smoke, um, a lovely cloud that blanketed the crater when we visited, um, but led us to think rather about burning palm plantations um, and rising CO2 levels. Um, there were many other directions that this project took. Um, I can only keep them together in my mind through through this image, which was a sort of table of contents for me that I, I made for myself and, and reprinted in the book as a sort of mandala of the, the threads that um, connect us and our aesthetic perceptions in, during a year without a winter. So thank you.